If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Daniel 7. Today's message is absolutely loaded, and there's a ton of stuff that I feel the Lord's wanting me to say today, and I I feel like my spirit is doing jumping jacks, and how do I communicate all of this with clarity and understanding, and so I hope that by the Spirit of God I'm able to do that. You'll notice in your bulletins that there's a timeline that was put in there, an insert. If you do not have this, the ushers are available to equip you with this handout. Just simply lift up your hand right now and the ushers will come and they will equip you. So we've got some hands up and just keep them up as the ushers come by. And then at the end of the service, these handouts will be available at the welcome desk. If you're like, I want to grab some more, maybe share with other people, Um, but you're welcome to, to take that. Just lift your hand up. The ushers will equip you with the timeline and the handout. And to start, we're going to be on the side that has all the pictures that help to summarize Daniel 7 and 8 as we walk through this. Now before we begin, I want to recap a little bit of our series that we started here and uh, Daniel 1 through 6. We know Daniel was taken captive into uh, Babylon and the the Jews were in exile and he's in this new kingdom and in the midst of that he's going to be a a leader in Babylon and they train him up and and yet he resolves in his heart not to defile God and and, and his body and he's going to live for the Lord even in the midst of this culture that is full of pagan worship. And then you see in Daniel 2, there's a dream that takes place for King Nebuchadnezzar, and he needs an interpretation. And we'll walk through that in a second. It's important to recap Daniel 2, but the king has a vision about an image, and he needs some help interpreting that. And Daniel steps in to do that. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace, if you remember that. Then we get into uh, Daniel 4, 5, and 6. Walking through those things, we had the writing on the wall, we had Daniel in the lion's den, and then I also, my favorite was Nebuchadnezzar coming to faith in God. He was no longer like, uh, God has my attention, he says, God has my heart, that was Daniel 4. And uh, just an absolute incredible six-week journey that we've been on, and now we move into Daniel's 7 through 12, and we're going to cover three chapters this week, three chapters next week. These last six chapters are an addendum or an attachment to the historical narrative that we've been going through. So Daniel 1 through 6 has been kind of a historical process, and then now we get this prophetic journal of Daniel that's full of dreams and visions and angelic interpretation, angels coming to him and explaining what all of this means, and it is absolutely loaded, and we're going to do our best to walk through this here the next couple of weeks, and so you've got your handout, go to the side that has the images, and I'm going to start by praying and asking for the Lord's grace blessing and guidance over this time together. So would you pray with me before we get into the word? Father, I thank you for this time here in the book of Daniel. Lord, this is your word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you desire to speak to us here today. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us and lead us as we go through the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me to communicate clearly the things you've placed upon my heart to share Lord, have your way in each of our hearts, in each of our lives. We pray a blessing over the children's ministry and the nursery, and I pray that you'd bless them as they seek Jesus together. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you can recall, in Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it was regarding that statue, right? And it was made out of these different elements. And you'll notice on your handout on the screen as well. But the interpretation of this dream, this statue represented several kingdoms, one of which was Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, and that was the head, the head of gold that represented Babylon. But there was going to be some world powers that would come and take over control, and the next one would be the Medo-Persia Empire, and that would come next with the silver shoulders and arms, and then the next empire, you've got Greece, and then the next empire, you'd have Rome, and then that transitioned down into the feet, where there's going to be a future Rome, a divided Rome that will come together and form these nations that have a prophetic implication for us today that's coming in the future. And so we can look back through history and we can see, okay, the Babylon thing's happened, the Medo-Persia thing has happened, Greece has happened, Rome has happened, but that last piece, the old Rome, there's going to be a new Rome, and that is something that is still to be fulfilled to our future. Now, as we walk through this, go with me to Daniel 7. It's important to note that You remember the rock in the vision, the rock being Jesus and his kingdom, the coming kingdom of Jesus. Hang on to that because you're going to see that here in Daniel 7. So what we need to do here, we, we were just talking about this dream of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had. Now fast forward at least 20 to 30 years because when Daniel says in uh, Daniel 7 verse 1, he says, During the first year of the king Belshazzar. So we know that on down the line after Nebuchadnezzar died, there were several kings eventually came to his son Nabonidus and his grandson Belshazzar. So we know we're a bit in the future as Daniel has a dream and vision. He says he wrote this down, and this is what he saw. Daniel 7, verse 2. He says, In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from each other. Verse 4, the first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. So that first image we see here in Daniel 7 is we have this lion with wings and that that nation would be Babylon. And the human in this, they think, would be Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is what Daniel sees. And you can see why it's important to look at that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and how it fits here in Daniel 7. Now verse 5. Then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. And it was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, Get up. Devour the flesh of many people. So he moves from the one beast now to the second beast. The second beast here representing Medo-Persia. Okay? So you see this being fulfilled through history. This is Daniel getting all of this ahead of all of these events. And the ribs that are in the mouth there of the bear representing three countries that were conquered by the bear. Let's keep moving here in verse 6. It says, then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard, 
and it had four birds' wings on its back, and it had four heads. Now, great authority was given to this beast. Now, this being the, the nation of Greece, the empire of Greece, and Alexander the Great would be one that conquered in many ways, and he was short-lived, and we'll get all into that here in a second in Daniel 8, but just know that that's what that represents. Again, we're following that statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now in verse 7, it says, Then in my vision that night I saw a fourth beast, who's terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. And it devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, a horn in Scripture is considered authority. These were ten kings, okay? And it says in verse 8, as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. Now, if you remember the statue and the legs, Rome would come. Now, Rome would fall, but there's going to be a new Rome that in the future will be set up, and out of that will come the Antichrist. And we'll get to that in a moment if you're like, wow, this message is loaded. You're absolutely right. We'll do our best to walk through this. Verse 11, he says, I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. Now let me touch on a couple things that are happening also inside this passage, Daniel sees kind of a court set up before God the Father. And if, depending on the translation, you'd see it listed as the Ancient of Days. We sang about that just a moment ago, but that is God the Father. And there's this courtroom set up, and he's got a book opened. And, and Daniel sees also warfare going on against God's people. And then he also sees the reign of Jesus. Do you remember the rock in the dream that knocks down the statue, the image? Okay, Daniel sees that here in Daniel 7 in his own dream and vision. We see the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And if you're like, millennial reign, what on earth does that mean? Again, we will walk through this here in a second. Now, just a sidebar I feel like it would be important to address this because if you listen to messages regarding Daniel 7, you might get another interpretation that would be more the contemporary view. And that being the first beast, the lion with the wings, some people call that Great Britain and the United States. They got the lion and then the eagle's wings, and so they bring that together. And then another one, the bear... They look at that as Russia, and then another one, the, uh, the uh, leopard with the four heads and all that, they come together with the Middle East or Central Asia, and then this last beast, 10 European nations that would be Rome revived. Now, personally, I don't hold the contemporary view and, and all these more contemporary nations that you and I would be more familiar with, but one thing I will do, if, if that's somebody's view, I'll run with you to the end there at that last beast where there's that 10 uh, nations coming together in the, the, the last days, okay? So just at that point, if you hear that, personally, I don't 
look at that myself, but I, I will run with them to the point of the fourth and final beast and what is to come. Okay, and Daniel 7 closes with this verse. That was the end of the vision. And I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts, and my face was pale with fear. But I kept these things to myself. How many of you right now are thinking, this message is absolutely loaded? Okay? Imagine if you had that, that dream with that vision. And there is an element where like, man, what is up with this? This is somewhat terrifying, especially when you consider this last beast. And Daniel's trying to make sense of all of this in his mind. And then the angels came and gave the interpretation and all of that. And in the end, Daniel's just like, I was terrified with my thoughts. But then I decided I'm going to keep these things to myself. Now go with me to Daniel 8. Daniel 8. Now this is two years later. Okay? Two years later, in Daniel 8, it says, During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west, to the north, and to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased, and he became very great. And while I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. And the goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. Now let's walk through some history, all right? So what you have here in this, this vision that Daniel sees, he sees the Medo-Persia empire represented in the ram, the two horns, okay? And then you see the one-horned goat representing Alexander the Great and Greece. And it says the goat came in so fast. Now, if you know history, Alexander the Great conquered the world in a very quick time frame. Didn't take him long at all. It's actually surprising how quickly he did that. And so he comes in, that swift goat takes out Medo-Persia, and then you're left here with a ram that has no horns, and then there's the goat. Now you'll notice that something starts to happen to this goat in Daniel's vision. Now verse 8 of Daniel 8, it says, The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, the large horn was broken off. In the large horn, horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and truth 
was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything he did. Now let's stop here again for a little more history. Okay, So you see the one horn on the goat, then it turns into four, and then out of that, one of those horns is going to continue to grow and become very great. Now we know the one horn would be Alexander the Great representing Greece. Now he conquered the world very, very quickly, but he also died at a very young age, the age of 33. And when he was on his deathbed, he decided, I want to give the kingdom over to my four generals. And so these generals was General Cassander, General Lysimachus, General Seleucus, and General Ptolemy. And General Seleucus took the region of the north, being north of Israel, and Ptolemy took the region to the south of Israel. And Israel at times would be caught in the crossfire of these two kingdoms. They're stuck. And as that said in Daniel 8, there were times where this kingdom would actually come against Israel. Israel. And Seleucus's kingdom is called the Seleucid kingdom. It's not called Greece anymore. It was divided out. And several kings after him, we get to a man named Atiochus Epiphanes. That's this big horn that grows up. And he is an evil, evil, evil man in the Seleucid kingdom. He gave himself the name God manifest. They even printed that on coins. In other words, he's telling people, I am God. I am Zeus incarnate. Now, some people did not like Antiochus. And critics actually called him, instead of Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, which means beast or animal or insane. Now, Antiochus had a disdain for the Jews Because they would not embrace him. That's odd. They didn't embrace this pagan king. But that disdain and the times that they were caught in the crossfire led to persecution of the Jews. In fact, he would lead the killing of 80,000 Jews and taking more into captivity. He'd also lead the plundering of God's temple, and, and he burned the scriptures, and he outlawed circumcision, and he sets up pagan idols in the temple of God, and even sacrificing a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar of sacrifice, often referred to as the abomination of desolation. The courts became desolate because of this. And in Daniel 8, all of the events that you're seeing here in Daniel 8 are actually a foreshadow of the Antichrist that is to come in the future. Again, we'll get to him in a moment. And it's a foreshadow of that coming seven-year period called the Tribulation. Now, Daniel says this in verse 13, Daniel 8. It says, Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. And one of them asked, How long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's armies be trampled on? And the other one replied, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. 
2,300 days. Now, if you walk through history, that's over six years, going into a seventh year. This oppression of God's people by Antiochus, it does not sit well with a group of priests known as the Maccabees. And they're tired of what is going on. These guys become freedom fighters, and they push the Syrian army out of Jerusalem, and they take back the temple of God. And in an effort to restore right worship of the Lord, they decide to light up the temple lamp known as the menorah. And they only had enough oil to light this lamp for one day. And it would take about eight days to produce the oil that would be needed. And miraculously, this one cruise of oil lasted eight days. And the Jews still recognize and they celebrate this moment in their history with something called the Festival of Lights. Perhaps you've heard of that. It would be Hanukkah. So they're celebrating what the Maccabees had done to find their freedom. And then verse 27, Daniel 8 closes out with this. Daniel says, I was overcome and I lay sick for several days. And afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Hey, that loaded Daniel 7 and 8. Now, if you could, the handout that you've been given, can you just set that aside for a second? Because I want to get you really focused on Daniel 9. So go with me into the scriptures, and we're not going to read all of Daniel 9 right away. I'm just going to read sections and talk through them. We go back now. Daniel is in the Medo-Persian reign here, okay? And it says in verse 1 of Daniel 9, It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. It says, During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So Daniel is actually having a, kind of his own personal study. And he's going through the scriptures. And he lands in Jeremiah. And you're welcome to go to these passages in Jeremiah with me. Just put your hand in Daniel 9 and walk to Jeremiah. And we're going to be in chapter 25 and then also chapter 29. But as Daniel is walking through the scriptures, he reads about what Jeremiah said in regards to 70 years of exile. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 through 12 says, This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. I'm sure as Daniel read that, he's thinking, Whoa, there's been some changes. There's a new king. Medo-Persia has come and taken over Babylon. And I've been in exile for the 70 years. Daniel, his heart is being stirred by the prophetic words that came through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, a real famous passage that a lot of people quote today, if there's anyone who can put this on their social media feed, it's Daniel. 
And it applied to his life. Daniel 29, starting here in verse 10. And I know you've heard this verse. It says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things that I've promised, and I will bring you home again. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and hope. And then it says, In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. Now, week one, I said, Can you imagine being taken out of your homeland to a whole nother place? And for 70 years, you're living like this. And you come across this kind of prophetic passage from the prophet Jeremiah. There would be something stirring in you. You go, it's been 70 years. Does God mean what he says in the scripture? He absolutely does. And Daniel is so stirred. You see his response here in verse 3. He says, So I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. And I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes, which makes you go, That's a really odd response. Throw some burlap on and some ashes and. But that was a sign at that time of mourning and repentance. The burlap being uncomfortable and the ashes representing ruin. It was a humility before God Almighty. And Daniel, the the scriptures are speaking to his heart in such a way, he's like, i got to respond to this. i got to pray to the Lord. And then in verses 4 through 19, you see Daniel's prayer. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed. So Daniel's going to speak on behalf of himself and the people of Israel. He says, O Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are right, but as you see, our faces are covered with shame. This is true of all of us, including the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and ancestors are covered with shame Because we've sinned against you. But the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, for we have not followed the instructions he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has disobeyed your instructions and turned away, refusing to listen to your voice. So now the solemn curses and judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured down on us because of our sin. You have kept your word and done to us and our rulers exactly as you warned. Never has there been such a disaster as happened in Jerusalem. Every curse written against us in the law of Moses has come true. Yet we have refused to seek mercy 
from the Lord our God by turning from our sins and recognizing his truth. Therefore, the Lord has brought upon us the disaster he prepared. The Lord our God has right, he was right to do all of these things, for we did not obey him. Our Lord, our God, you brought lasting honor to your name by rescuing your people from Egypt in a great display of power. But we have sinned and we are full of wickedness. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. And the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. O our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve your help, but because of your mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. For your own sake, do not delay, O my God, for your people and your city bear your name. What a prayer. You think of Daniel, this righteous man. And in a lot of ways, we've we've looked at him the last several weeks and we're going, this man is a man of God. And here he's crying out to the Lord for forgiveness and repenting of his sin and the sin of of his people. And the verse for this week in Daniel 9 9, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. I love how Daniel draws out that God is a God of mercy. And even in the midst of all of their disobedience and their rebellion and the things they've been suffering, Daniel calls out to a God that he knows is merciful. God is still full of grace and full of mercy and is willing to extend his forgiveness to those who reach out and repent of their sin. And then this shifts gears after Daniel prays that prayer and we get into a section called the 70 weeks. Verse 20 says, I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. And as I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I am here to tell you what it was. For you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning of your vision. Now as we go to these last few verses in Daniel 9, you can pull out your your, uh, insert again. okay? Because these verses are here in the insert. Daniel 24 through 27. This prophecy of 70 weeks. So here's... What is laid out. It says, A period of seven sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, listen and understand 
Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. And after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with the flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Sound familiar? It says, until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So as we walk through this timeline, I want to point out aspects of history. And you go, wait a second, there's like these sets of seven, and it can be kind of confusing. And so let's just walk through this here. So you'll notice that in 444 B.C., Okay, at the bottom of that page on the far left-hand side, there's a decree made by Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem. Start the clock. Okay? You've got that first seven sets of seven. These, these sets of seven represent seven years. And so 49 years go by, and Jerusalem is rebuilt. And then you've got that set of 62 Weeks. So the total of 483 weeks, or 69 weeks. And when it talks about how the anointed one comes, that's referring to Jesus. And in 33 AD, you have Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We celebrate it as Palm Sunday. And so those 483 years have been fulfilled. Those 69 weeks have been fulfilled. And it says, and the anointed one will be cut off, seeming that he's accomplished nothing. That's referring to Jesus' crucifixion. Okay, but in the midst of all of that, those 69 weeks have been fulfilled. And then we also see that um, approximately 37 years later, we see the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by Rome. Again, fulfilling parts of Daniel 9, verse 26. And in the midst of this timeline that you see, we're living in the church age and there's more to come. There's a 70th week that's sitting out there that is yet to be fulfilled. And there's a variety of interpretations, but I'm going to walk you through based on what we see here in Daniel 9 and also in Daniel 7. This 70th week is often referred to as the Great Tribulation. And it's a seven-year period, and it talks about this three and a half years of peace. And so we know that this Rome revived, or this new Rome, is going to establish some kind of peace treaty. And the mission of this person is to rule. And this would be the coming of the Antichrist. And under his unifying leadership, peace comes. And part of his peace plan will be 
making Jerusalem a central place of worship again for the Jews. And they'll rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And there's enough room on the Temple Mount right now to rebuild. And all the articles of the temple have been made. They're ready to go. The priestly garments are ready to go. As soon as this temple is built, they are ready. And worship will be reestablished for the Jewish people. But after three and a half years, that foreshadowing of epiphanies, it comes back through the Antichrist. And you see this abomination of desolation where the Antichrist defiles the worship in the temple, setting up an image of worship and speaking blasphemy, proclaiming to be God. He wants people's worship. All of that starts with a peace treaty. And that seven-year period of tribulation, it ends with this battle called Armageddon. It's going to take place in the valley of Megiddo. That's why it's called Armageddon. And Jesus will come back with his people and he will take care of the enemy and he will set up his kingdom here on this earth. It's called the millennial reign of Christ. The Bible talks very clearly about this. Remember the rock? Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom literally here on this earth. And he is establishing his kingdom through people who call out to Jesus and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The kingdom can be in your hearts leading up to that day when he sets his kingdom up on earth. Now, there's a variety of views about the people, the church, those who have the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What will happen to them? And the Bible talks about a rapture. Now, it doesn't use the word rapture, but it uses things like the blessed hope. And the rapture means to to snatch away or to seize. And there are several passages I put on this timeline. And there are many who believe that this 70th week is reserved for the nation of Israel based on what you see in Daniel 9, 24. And that the church will be removed while all of this takes place. That would be called a pre-tribulation rapture. Now I'm also respecting some other views out there that will go through the three and a half years of peace and then the church will be raptured. That's called mid-tribulation rapture. And there's some that would also believe that we go through all seven years as the church and that we're literally brought up into the air to then be right back down on earth again with Jesus. And there's some that actually say there is no rapture, but I don't know how you can explain the scriptures that clearly speak of people being raised and not experiencing death, but instantly being transformed. At some point in the timeline here, there will be a rapture. And so with all of that said... Consider the days in which we live. Jesus' disciples asked him, hey, when, when will all this kind of stuff happen? This is in Matthew 24. And Jesus begins to describe what he calls birth pains. And you can read those in Matthew 24. 
And you can look around in our world today and we just see that things continue to, to wax worse and worse culturally all over the world. And then you see what's escalating right now over in Israel and all the tensions of surrounding nations and terrorist organizations. And I'm just going to do some speculation here. But I think if you were to draw a little spot, you know, you see on a map, it says, you are here. I think that we're in that period where we are coming up on the establishment of the new Rome with the leadership of the Antichrist. It's very possible that we could be entering into these days that will trigger the Great Tribulation. One of the things you see on that timeline is this Gog and Magog described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's actually two different Gog and Magogs. There's the one that is to come very soon maybe in our history and there's another one that will happen that's described in the book of Revelation at the very end of the millennial reign of Christ. But I want to encourage you to consider picking up this document from the welcome desk from Got Questions that explains Ezekiel 38 and 39 regarding Gog and Magog. And I'm just going to take a second to walk through this, just little aspects from this document. Historically speaking, Magog was a grandson of Noah. And the descendants of Magog settled to the far north of Israel, likely in Europe and northern Asia. Magog seems to be used to refer to northern barbarians in general, but likely also has a connection to Magog the person. The people of Magog are described as very skilled warriors in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog and Magog appear in Ezekiel and also in Revelation 20, but they're not the same event. The events are separated by at least 1,000 years. That's why on the timeline you see Gog and Magog number one, and that on the timeline I put more to come. Okay, that there's more, and that would be a Gog and Magog number two from Revelation 20. In Ezekiel's prophecy, Gog will be the leader of a great army that attacks the land of Israel, which is peaceful and unsuspecting at the time. Gog is described as of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. It says, when will Ezekiel's battle of Gog and Magog occur? There are a couple of theories. Number one, before the tribulation begins. This view points to the fact that after the battle, the people of Israel will be burning the enemy's weapons for seven years and spend over seven months burying the dead. That length of time most likely requires the battle to be fought before the tribulation and possibly even before the rapture of the church. The other theory would be that it's during the first part of the seven-year tribulation. And this view hinges on the fact that Israel is at peace when the attack begins. The security Israel enjoys is assumed to be the result of Israel's covenant with the Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. According to Ezekiel, Magog will not win. God will intervene to preserve Israel. There shall be a great earthquake. 
That's from Ezekiel 38, 19. Every man's sword will be against his brother. That's verse 21. And God will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on Gog and his troops and on the many nations with him. That's verse 22. The result is that the nations will see God's greatness and holiness. And two points. Number one, in the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the armies come primarily from the north and involve only a few nations. And number two, the battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is used by God to bring Israel back to himself. I feel as if we're living in some interesting times. Daniel stumbles across Jeremiah and he goes, this is a prophetic word. God's about to bring me home. Is it possible that God is setting the stage for what is to come and what's been prophetically spoken about here in Daniel 9? Ezekiel 39 closes with this. He says, So now this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will end the captivity of my people. I will have mercy on all Israel, for I jealously guard my holy reputation. Sounds a little similar to Daniel 9's prayer, doesn't it? And they will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they come home to live in peace in their own land with no one to bother them. When I bring them home from the lands of their enemies, I will display my holiness among them for all the nations to see. And then my people will know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them away to exile and brought them home again. And I will leave none of my people behind. And I will never again turn my face from them. For I will pour out my spirit upon the people of Israel. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. In closing today, three points of application. The first one is this. Take note from Daniel 9.3. Folks, get your spiritual house in order. We are living in interesting days. You saw Daniel's response to the word. You saw Daniel's response to prophecy. What is our response to the prophetic word? It says Daniel turned to the Lord and he pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. He repented of his sin. You walk around casually doing your own thing. God's saying, hey, wake up. Turn to me. Just a few days ago, I had a dream. And I could tell in this dream that I was preaching this message today. And as I was preaching, there was all kinds of chatter coming from the congregation. And people weren't paying attention. And in this dream, I got so frustrated that I picked this pulpit up and I slammed it to the ground to try to get everybody's attention. And it broke in several pieces. And I remember in my dream, my father-in-law can fix that. (laughs) And I remember walking out of here Of course, if I did that, I'm guessing there would be some conversations going on, particularly from the elders. And I remember as I was explaining to the elders what was going on and what I was feeling and this sense of urgency and that people really weren't paying attention to the word of God, the elders, they had my back. I knew I was going to be preaching again the next Sunday. 
And I kind of forgot about that dream until Friday. It just like flooded back. Let's pay attention to the prophetic words of God. I believe he's speaking to us here today. Get your spiritual house in order. Number two, in light of everything that is going on today, focus in on the king's business. So get your house in order and then get to work on kingdom-related things. In Daniel 8, verse 27, as Daniel was overcome and he lay sick with the things he was seeing and interpreting all of this, it says, afterwards I got up and I performed my duties for the king. We have a duty in the kingdom of God. We need to be working with a sense of urgency. And then the last one, number three, be very prayerful about how to discern the days in which we are living. And I feel like I've stepped out on a limb here and I said, if you, know, if you were to draw a map and say you are here, there's a certain degree where I'm stepping out on the edge. And that it might seem a little bit like speculation. What are you saying the Lord's going to come back in the next 10 minutes? I don't know that. But what I can do is preach the scriptures and tell us, be ready. We don't know the day or the hour, but watch and be ready. Get your life straightened out before the Lord. But we also need to be very prayerful how to discern the days in which we are living. I think this is very interesting in Daniel 7, 28. He has that vision, that dream, and as he's discerning all of this, he says, and I kept it to myself. And there's some wisdom that when we're seeking through this stuff, instead of just, Bleh, here's all this speculation and confusing the world around us, what happens is, is people begin to not trust us if some of the things we speculate don't actually happen. I've heard some people say the church has cried wolf so long regarding the rapture that maybe when it's actually about to happen, the world's not listening. So we prayerfully discern what is going on and we, we say, God, help me know what to say in the midst of everything that is happening, in the midst of what your scriptures say. And while I'm here, it would also be good counsel pastorally Sometimes people will say things like, God told me, and it's like a stamp on whatever it is I'm about to say. Please be careful of that kind of talk. A better way to approach that is say, I feel like God is saying this. Because if you proclaim something that says, this is God's mouthpiece here, and then it doesn't happen, well, what does that do? Let us be discerning about the days in which we are living. And Jesus said, folks, watch and be ready. We went over our time today, but I'm telling you, there was so much to cover that I'm like, we've, we've got to cover it. People need to be ready. People need to be aware of what it is that's going on. Again, if you want that timeline, there's more copies at the welcome desk. And it'd be my prayer that the Lord would use this message today 
to get people's spiritual house in order. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, it's important for each and every one of us to pay attention to what it is that you say in the word. It would be important for us to look to Christ in times like this, the one whose kingdom is coming, the one who reigns forever and ever. And as I talk about getting the spiritual house in order, Lord, I pray by your spirit you would help us to come to you in prayer, in confession, in repentance, asking for your forgiveness for the ways in which we fall short. And Lord, if there's someone listening right now that as they consider their ways and they wonder, am I right with God? Do I have a relationship with the ancient of days, the God Almighty? That is possible through faith in Jesus Christ who came to this earth to pay the penalty and the price for your sin so that you might have everlasting life. But have you reached out to Jesus as you consider your life in relationship to God? Is Jesus present? And if you can't answer that with an yes and absolutely, then I want to encourage you to pray with me right now to receive Jesus into your life. Just pray with me in your heart right now and say, Jesus, I need you. Please come into my life. I put my faith and trust in you. Please forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me and make me new. And Lord, I give you my life today. And I thank you for this gift of salvation. Thank you for helping me to get my spiritual house in order. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.